the reading is from Genesis 12, 1 through 9. It's page 11 of the Pew Bibles. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah and Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west side and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. September 11th is a day for Americans in which we are reminded that the world is not the way it is supposed to be. Now, for most Americans, on your average day, for most Americans, though certainly not all Americans, but for most Americans, on your average day, uh, the life that we experience in America points to the goodness and beauty of creation. Most of us, whether we take it for granted or not, oftentimes we take it for granted, the life that we live day in and day out is a dream. I mean, that's why they call it the American dream. For most Americans, again, not all Americans, but for most Americans, the life that we live is a dream. On your average day, the life that we live and experience points to the goodness and the beauty of creation. It points to to the world that God created the way it's supposed to be. Most of the time, that's how it is, you know, because... Because we, we're living the American dream. But September 11th is a day that reminds us that that isn't the whole story. We are continuing in our series called The Story. And the central thesis for this whole series is that if you want to understand passage of the Bible, you've got to understand how it fits into the story of the Bible, that the Bible primarily is a story. It's not primarily an instruction manual for life. It's not primarily a book of of proverbial wisdom. I just noticed something here. I I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. I don't know if I walk to this side of the stage um, because there are more people here or if you've all started going over here because I walk in this direction just occurred to me after seven years here, I'm going to start, I'm going to start working this side over here. <laughs> now, the, so the central thesis here is that the story, the Bible is a story. 
And of course, it has, the Bible has all of the practical wisdom you could ever need, all of the instructions for life that you could ever need, but to get at that and to really mine the depths of the truths that emerge from Scripture, you've got to see how each passage sits into this overarching narrative, this overarching story of the Bible. And it is a story that begins with creation, with the goodness of creation. That God created everything and he created it good. You know, we, we sing that song at the beginning of the service, uh, Indescribable, which just declares the beauty and the glory of creation. And, and while we're at it, I just, I just want to say, uh, welcome back to the NIAC students. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. And uh, Emily Bellinger, we're glad that you're back. And also, uh, you may have noticed a, a new guitar player, Ben Riley, was here playing. Ben, we're really glad that you're here with us and just really appreciate you using your gifts uh, to help us in worship. I have a special place in my heart for guitar players. I just love them immediately. But we, we sing that song, Indescribable, which just declares the, the goodness and beauty of, of, of all of creation. And we saw that we are made in the image of God, and we were made precisely to use our gifts to, to bring greater beauty and greater order, that, that God created the world good, but he didn't actually create it He didn't create it perfect, that there was still room for greater beauty and order to be cultivated, and that he invites us, indeed he calls us to be a part of that process of bringing greater beauty and order to all of creation. But then what we also saw is that we doubted God. Adam doubts God. He gets tricked into thinking that maybe God's holding him back somehow. Satan tricks him into thinking, God's holding you back. You need to, you need to turn away from God. You need to do your, your own thing apart from God and apart from God's purposes because you can't trust God. And so we read about how humanity rebels against God, and then this leads us to rebel against one another. Rebellion against God leads us to rebel against one another. And so then we, we start to see, really, from Genesis 3 through 11, the spiraling decadence of humanity, and, and, and we, see, we see God trying to figure out, in the mystery of his providence, how exactly do I deal with these, this, these creatures, this creation of mine that I've made in my image, but they keep rebelling against me. Of course, we saw in, in, in Genesis 6, the, the flood where God wipes out humanity, and one of the things that we saw in there is that really God wasn't doing to them anything they weren't already doing to themselves. They were already on, on the path to destruction. We saw that, that actually one way you can see this is that the, the way in which he wipes out humanity, the flood uh, within the, the narrative world of Genesis, the, the metaphorical layers that are there, suggest that in one sense what God is saying is, look, if you don't want me to be a part of this, fine. See what happens when I pull my hand back. See what happens when I pull my hand back. Because actually what we discover is that what happens with the, the flood is that the waters come and they cover everything. And so the, the, waters, the waters cover everything. Does that ring any bells? Well, yeah, that's exactly what we find in Genesis 1. That before God intervenes with his, with his creative order, that there's just water over the face of the earth. And, and water in that ancient world there symbolized chaos and non-order. And so in Genesis 1, we see God speaking into chaos and non-order and bringing beauty and order. And so then in Genesis 6, it's it's like you say, well, hey, you don't want me around. Okay, but here's what's going to happen. 
And so he, the flood comes, but, but then because he loves humanity, he promises he's never going to do this again. He promises never to do this again. And then we come, we, we didn't go into chapter 11, but we come to, if we came to chapter 11 right before this, we discover, you know, humanity's back to the same old thing. It's about where it was before Genesis 6. And so, so God, instead of wiping us out, he scatters humanity and confuses them, uh, trying to kind of slow down their, their propensity for mayhem or their ability to cause mayhem. And so, so this question begins to emerge, what is God going to do? What is God's plan to redeem humanity? And what is God's plan to redeem all of creation? And this is what we discover in in chapter 12 is God's answer to that question. And here's God's plan to redeem humanity. He calls out a people. He calls out, he selects, he elects a special people to be the means through which he brings renewal to all of creation. He says to Abram, who will become Abraham, which means father of many, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And it's, it's interesting there, I will, make, I will make you into a great nation. Uh, that goes against what we find in chapter 11 where they want to make themselves great. God puts an end to that. But then here he says, no, no, I'm going to call you out, my special people, and I will make you great. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. He's saying, I will protect you. I will protect you against those who would seek to thwart this plan. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here it is. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's purposes, God's plan to redeem humanity and redeem all creation, what is his plan? His plan is to use a people to call out a people. And I think some of us might think to ourselves, you know, I don't really, I don't get, you know, why doesn't God just fix it, right? I mean, why doesn't he just fix it? All of this mayhem, this is the whole, the theodicy question. Why is there evil and suffering? Why doesn't God just fix it? You know, why doesn't he just, you know, breathe his peace and his shalom into all things? And I think we kind of get, kind of get the hint right here. The reason why he doesn't do that is the same reason why when he created all things, he didn't create it perfect. He created it good. He didn't create it perfect because he wanted to include humanity in bringing beauty and order to all of creation. And similarly, the reason why God doesn't just make everything right is because he wants to and he invites us to be a part of the process of bringing renewal to all things. And so in one sense, one answer to the question of the odyssey, which is, God, why, why don't you fix things? As he looks back and he says, well, why don't you? I've, I've called you to be a part of the process. And well, where would that come from? Well, you see, this is totally in line with originally what he set out for humanity. Again, we go back to Genesis, Genesis uh, 2, and, and what do we see? God doesn't just make things completely perfect. He makes it good, but he invites humanity to be a part of the process 
of bringing greater beauty and order to creation. In other words, he invites us to be a part of creation. And here with Abraham, he's really doing the same thing, except for now he's inviting us to be a part of redemption. It's in line with the the promises that he made to Adam. It's in line with really the promises that he made to Eve. Uh, When he's talking to the serpent, you may remember, he talks about how there will be enmity between the serpent and Eve's line and and talks about how it's going to go back and forth. There's going to be this this tension between between Satan and humanity and and, Satan's going to score some victories and humanity's going to score some victories and go back and forth. But then he says that, that ultimately humanity will crush. Humanity will crush the serpent's head. And, and so, so we see that, that even in there, it's this promise that God is going to use humanity to help bring an end to pain and suffering and, and evil, that he's going to use humanity as a part of this process of redemption. So he calls out a people. And, and, and then we see that this is the story of, of Abraham, but then we see that this whole story then unfolds. What you need to understand is that the rest of the Bible is about the unfolding of this promise to Abraham. The fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. The whole Bible flows out of these promises here. We we see this isn't just Abraham's story. You see, this is the story of Israel. Actually, we, we find initially these promises that are made to Abraham. We find multiple layers of fulfillment throughout scriptures. We find initial fulfillment even in Genesis itself. One obvious and kind of shining example is the story of Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, where God uses Joseph through a, 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 a twist, a twisting narrative with lots of turns, uh, ultimately takes Joseph and, and uses him to bless the nations, that there's a great famine that comes upon them, and God uses Joseph to provide for these people during the famine, to provide for the nations, not to just provide for Israel, but to provide for all nations, uses Joseph. And so we see sort of a a, a fulfillment of that even in Genesis. But to the Israelites living hundreds of years later, when they would have read this, they would have seen the fulfillment very clearly in the story of the Exodus. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. You can imagine what the Israelites were thinking when they would, when they would hear this. They know what that's talking about. That's talking about Pharaoh. It's talking about the Egyptians and how they held them in slavery and, and, and God's saying, no, no, that's, I'm not going to keep, I'm not going to allow them to keep you from carrying out your mission. So we see it initially fulfilled here, of course, God shows Abraham the promised land, and he, he doesn't get to go in there, but then, then later, of course, Israel goes in there. So we, we see partial fulfillment. Actually, some, sometimes people say that, that Genesis 12 through 50 is the Old Testament of the Old Testament, uh, that in, in the same way that the Old Testament in general uh, finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, uh, there's also a sense in which Genesis 12 through 50 finds fulfillment in the latter part of the Old Testament, so the Old Testament of the Old Testament. So what we discover is that this story is not just the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Again, it's the story of Israel, that they were called by God to be the means through which blessings 
would come to the nations. And, and this story progresses throughout the Bible. We're going to go through this as we continue in the series. And then we come to Jesus. And during Jesus' time, here's what Jesus discovers about this line, about this chosen people. They seem to be picking and choosing which part of these promises they want to keep. And when Jesus comes and speaks to the people of Israel, what he discovers is that they really like receiving God's blessing, but they don't so much like being God's blessing. They like receiving God's blessing. They like the idea that he will protect them against the nations, but they don't like the idea that they're called to bless the nations. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, when he's talking to the people of Israel, he's talking to the Israelites who what they want to do is they want to destroy all the nations that surround them. And Jesus is saying, no, you're called to bless the nations that surround you. Turn the other cheek when he talks about the enemies. He's not just talking about your coworker who eats all the donuts in the coffee room. He's talking about how the Israelites want to wipe out the Romans. They, they, want, they want God to come in and strike down thunder on them. He wants them to wipe them out because they like, being, they like receiving God's blessing, but they don't like the idea of being a blessing. And Jesus' whole ministry to, to Israel is saying, no, you are called to bless the nation. It's the story of Abraham. It's the story of Israel. And because it's the story of Jesus, it's Christians. It means it's our story. And so we can say very succinctly, what does it mean to be a Christian? Very simply, what does it mean to be a Christian? Within this overarching story, it's simply this. We are called to be the people who bless the nations. We are called to be the people who bless and bring renewal to the nations. We're called called to bless those on the outside, on the, on the outside. And then this is really important. We're called to bless those on the outside, those outside of our community, outside of our, our little church and outside of our little friendship and outside of our family. We're called to, to, to bless those on the, on the outside. You see, because, the, again, this is what, what Jesus came to realize is that the, the Israelites, they'd come and say, well, yeah, we're supposed to bless. We're supposed to bless one another, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. And so, well, then the question is, well, who's your neighbor? And they'd come to think, well, my neighbor is my fellow Israelite. And I need love. I need a blessing. Right? And so Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, and this whole point is, no, no, that's not just your neighbor. That, yeah, that is your neighbor, but you, you've got more than, than that. You're called to bless. The nations, you're called to bless those on the outside. Called to bless, that's what it means to be Christian. So for a Christian, there's this fundamental question. The fundamental question that each one of us should ask ourselves when we wake up in the morning is simply this. Who is God calling me to bless? That's our fundamental question. Who is God calling me to bless? In the big and in the small, in the big. I mean, because let me ask you this. Is that, is that the fundamental question that governs your life? That's it. Is that the question that governs your life? 
Who is God calling me to bless? Is that the, the fundamental question that governs your life? My, my, my thought is that, that maybe there are some other questions that govern our lives. Maybe a little more fundamental. Maybe you're single, and the reality is that, truthfully, if you're single, maybe the fundamental question that is governing your life is, who am I going to marry? And that's really what kind of consumes your thoughts. That, that's the, the thing you want to get figured out. Who am I going to marry? Maybe that's it. Or, or maybe uh, the fundamental question that governs your life is, is how am I going to provide for my retirement? That's the fundamental question that, that governs the way that I do everything is, is how am I going to fund my retirement? Or, or maybe the question that, you know, is, is uh, how do I get into this career I really want to get into? And that's what governs all of the decisions that I make is how I get it. Now, listen, those questions aren't bad. Those questions are bad. In fact, a lot of those questions are really good questions as long as they're not our primary question. Are those primary, are they secondary, are they tertiary? Are they, do they govern your life or do they fall underneath this more basic question of who is God calling me to bless? I, I shared this a few weeks ago. Again, if you're single and you're looking to get married, and, and so it's easy for that fundamental question to be, who am I going to marry? But if you switch it to, to know who is God calling me to bless? You see, what you need to do is you don't need to go around trying to find who are you going to marry. What you do is you just keep seeking the direction that God is calling you. Who is God calling you to bless? And you run in that direction. And while you're going, you just from time to time, you look side to side, and you see who's running that same course. You see who's running that along with you. It's still a question that you ask, but it's not your fundamental question. In the big and in the small, the fundamental question should be, who is God calling me to bless? In the big and in the small. You wake up in the morning. How can I bless Sherry, the barista at Starbucks, when I go in this morning? How can I bless Bob, my coworker, who eats all the donuts in the coffee room? In the big and in the small, what it means to be a Christian, the core is that we're called by God to be the people who bless others. And again, what we see, it's that it's blessing those on the outside, on the outside. It's really easy for us to turn and bless those on the inside. And so this this has a couple of implications, important implications, again, which is what Jesus was getting at over and over again with the Israelites who saw their need to bless, but saw it simply as blessing those within their community and within their family. And I think that this calling to bless the nations, to bless those on the outside, has two very practical implications, both for parents and for church leaders. Both for parents and for church leaders. And here's here's the first implication of this for parents. For parents, who you bless begins with your children and your family. It begins with that. That's where you start. That's the primary focus it begins there, but it does not end with your children. It begins there, but it does not end. It, it certainly does begin there. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul talks about church leaders and says, says, if you can't manage your own family, how can you manage the church? If you can't care for your own family, then how can you care for the church? So we see this emphasis, this priority on blessing your children, blessing your, your family. But you notice, even in that statement, you notice that it's set within this broader context of, of blessing those outside of your family. In this context, it's then blessing those in the church that are not 
in your family. And, and here's what's important to realize. This is what's crucial, is that the reason, the primary reason why you bless your children is because that is the best strategy for blessing the nations. Let me say that again. The primary reason why you invest blessing your children is actually because it is the best strategy for blessing the nations. Psalm 127 talks about how children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. That there is this sense in which if you want to have kingdom impact, by far the greatest way to invest is to bless your children. I, I, I think about this with my own kids. I have two children. And, and I, realize, I realize, and this is important for all parents to understand, at the end of the day, the direction that my children go, the course that they choose to take, is ultimately a matter of God's sovereignty and their own freedom. It's important. Parents need to be absolved of this idea that they can completely determine what's going to happen with their children. You can't, you can't do that, and that, that's important. God wants us to, to trust him that ultimately the, the direction that our children go is up to God's sovereignty, the mystery of God's sovereignty and their own human responsibility and freedom and choices. But the reality is that's true of anybody you have influence on, right? I mean, no, no matter who you're seeking to bless and influence, you can only do so much at the end of the day. It's between between them and God. And so the reality is one of the things that I know is that the, the, the best opportunity that I have to have influence on anybody who could then go on and bless others is my children. I, I look at my kids and I look at them and, and I see so much potential. Again, I, I don't know what, where they're going to go, how God's going to lead them. I leave that in God's hands. But I look at them and I see so much potential. I see how they, they could do so much more than I can. I see how I can help them to learn from my mistakes, help shape them in ways that maybe I haven't been shaped. And I see that, and I see that potential. And the reason for blessing your children is precisely because that is the greatest investment strategy for blessing the nations, which is the ultimate goal. And that is the ultimate goal. It's not primarily about blessing your children. It's about blessing the nations. And that point is made very dramatically in a story within the story of Abraham. And that is dramatically made in Genesis 22. It's interesting here. Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, there is, there is a grammatical phrase that occurs in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22, and it doesn't occur anywhere else doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. And, and here's, here's where it is. Verse 1 here says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. The particular grammatical phrase that is used there for go is only used in one other place. It's used in Genesis 22. It's interesting that Genesis 12 and Genesis 22 form an inclusio, I used that word with the worship band this morning. They were wondering where I came up with the word inclusio. Well, it's because it's in my sermon today. But they, it forms an inclusio, and Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, an inclusio. And an inclusio uh, is, is basically where you have a, a literary unit that is, is bookmarked by something similar. It highlights the beginning 
and the end. And so the inclusio here is being marked by this unique grammatical phrase for go. And so what we discover is that Genesis 12 is the first time that God speaks to Abraham. And Genesis 22 is the last time God speaks to Abraham. So here it says, go, okay? Now you ready? Let's jump to Genesis 22 and see what does God say. Page 19, beginning in verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go. There's that word. There's that phrase. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you. Now, just at its most basic, almost primal level, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. I mean, how on, what, what is worse than God telling you to, to kill your son? Is there anything that could possibly be worse? Is there any commandment that could possibly be worse than that? I mean, I mean, even just at, like at a primal level, I mean, like even, even like a dog. You tell a dog to kill his pie, he's not going to like that. I mean, this is like, no, no this is crazy. And, and it's even crazier when you, when, you, when you look at the story, when you look at the context here, because, because actually what God tells Abraham in 15, in chapter 15, chapter 17, and again in chapter 22, is that he's going to be the father of many nations. His name means father of many, and that the primary way in which he's, he's going to bring renewal is through his line, through his, through his, his seed. And, and so, and his, his wife Sarah is barren. It was a miracle that, that Isaac was born in the first place. So you, so you see, Abraham has every possible reason to argue with God here. I mean, not just the fact that this is nuts in and of itself, but even like, hey, God, wait a minute. Isn't the whole point to use me and my line and my children to be the means through which renewal comes into this world? I mean, isn't the, I mean he's giving him every possible reason to argue with him. Why does God come out? And, of course, we need to remember, he doesn't actually end up killing him. Genesis 22, he ends up saying, no, no, don't, don't do this. And so far from being an example of sort of the barbarism of the Old Testament God, actually a number of scholars will, will argue that, that this actually stands out against the culture in that day where many cultures performed human sacrifice. And so this actually stands out in completely the opposite direction. So God doesn't actually, in the end, God stops him. But why does he, why does he say this to him? Why does he tell him to kill his only son? And here's what he knows. Here's what he realizes. God understands that his children are his greatest asset to carrying out his mission. But they are also the greatest temptation to become a hindrance to his mission. They're both the greatest asset for carrying out this mission. But also the temptation to be the greatest hindrance. Because the temptation is to turn inward. The temptation is to turn the blessing just to me and my family and my community. And again, this is exactly what happens. What happens to the people of Israel, this is exactly, this is exactly why 
Jesus says something remarkably similar to what we find here in Genesis 22. Jesus says to the Israelites, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is he really saying you're supposed to hate your family? No, but he's, he's saying exactly, he's doing the same thing that we find God doing with Abraham here, and that is that, that Jesus realizes, because he's seen it unfold, that the greatest asset to the people of God, their greatest asset to carrying out this mission to bring a blessing is also likely to be the greatest temptation to cause them to turn inward. So friends, as, as, as parents, we're called primarily to bless our children. But listen to this, the greatest thing that you can do for your children is to instill in them that they're called to bless beyond just their family. They're called to bless those who don't even bless them back. It's the greatest thing you can instill in your children. Because that's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We are called to be the people, to be the means through which God blesses the nations. We see this has important implications for parents. It also has important implications for church leaders. For church, for church leaders, as leaders in the church, leaders are, are called to start primarily by blessing those in the church. Galatians 6.10 says, when possible, uh, do good at every opportunity, especially for the household of believers. And so we see this part, you've got, you've got to focus in on the people in the church, in the community. I had an elder meeting just this past Saturday, and I just love our group of elders. We have men who, who really care about you. They have a heart for, for people and a heart for people in the church. And we, we've even gone through, we've divided up the, the congregational list so that there can be a greater intentionality in terms of praying for people in the church. We realize that we're here to, to, to shepherd and to bless those within the church. It's got to start there. But we're called to bless those in the church because there's a greater purpose. And that's to lead the church to bless the nations. Our community group leaders, we launched our community group ministry a couple of years ago. And when we started it out, we really wanted to focus on the folks in the church and try to draw them in and help them to grow and help to bless them and help to strengthen them. One of the things that we're doing now is we're encouraging our community group leaders to keep doing that. We need to shepherd and love the people in our groups, but let's start finding ways to push ourselves out, to push ourselves out of the comfort of our little community, of our little group. Let's let's push ourselves out to bless those on the outside. It's not easy, though, is it? It's not easy. One of, the, uh, one of the most difficult decisions my wife and I had to make just in the past year, and I don't want to over-dramatize this, but one of the most difficult decisions we had to make in the past year was the decision to leave the community group that we were in. Uh, we left a community group that had become like family. Uh, a community group that had the, the Duns and the Martinez's 
and then the Martins and the Lees and the Zampettis and it just came came to to join us and, and it, be, it be it was like it was like the connections that we had there were like family. I mean, I I remember my kids would would they they would, couldn't wait till Friday. They couldn't wait till Friday where we would go to the Dunn's house and we even wrote a little song, my kids and I, and and, and we just sang. It was just this one line. It just said Jenna and Julia. We'll see you on Friday, Jenna. I mean, and we would sing this throughout the week because it had become like this little, this little family. And then we sensed a call. God said to Kevin, leave your community. Leave the Duns. And go to a new land, a new community. And so we set out. We set out into the unknown. We set out into the land of the Chanites and the Lopezites and the Rodriguezites and the Morganites. I mean, they just doesn't that sound scary? And we, we, we set out to the unknown. We, we didn't know what these people were going to be like. You see, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to step out of that comfort zone. It's hard to step out of that familiarity and that that's exactly what we are called to do is to step out and to bless the nations. And, of course, one of the questions we got to ask ourselves was, well, why? Why should we do this? Why shouldn't we just stay with with those that, that we love and that bless us? Why shouldn't we just stay there? Why should we leave the comfort of our family to go to some, somewhere else? And the answer is because that's precisely what God has done for us. This isn't just the story of Abraham, or Jacob. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus, and Jesus, as we're finding over and over again as we go through this, that he is the climax of the story, of the big story, that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to see how it fits into the the story, and that everything points to Jesus. And so what we do when we look at Abraham and we look at Isaac, we see that that the ultimate fulfillment of the mission of Abraham is Jesus, and even the the mission of Isaac is Jesus, that Jesus is the, the truer and better Abraham. Jesus leaves the glory of heaven. He leaves the glory of heaven and he comes to a a world that, that just wants to kill him, that wants to get rid of him, but he comes out of obedience because he loves us. Jesus is the truer and better Abraham and he is the truer and better Isaac. That he is also the perfectly obedient son who when his heavenly father tells him to go and die for humanity, he he says, if that is your will. You see, the reason why, the reason why we go and we leave the the comfort that we experience is because this is precisely what God has done for us. That's the heart of the gospel. God has done this for us, and so we can do this for others. And, of course, we see that in the gospel, Jesus died, but he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave to show us that when you die to yourself, the heart of the gospel is that it ultimately will lead to life. Turn with me in closing to Luke. Luke chapter 18. 
Luke chapter 18, and here a famous passage, but you may not, you may not know how it ends. Sometimes we kind of end this early. Luke chapter 18, a rich man comes to, comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is on page 1039 of your pew Bibles. This man comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Really, what he's asking is, well, who are truly God's people? What does it mean to really be a member of God's, God's people? Because Jesus is coming around challenging those who saw themselves as a part of God's people. He's saying, well, you're not really acting like God's people, so I'm not really sure that you are. So he's coming along and he says, well, well what does it mean to be God's people. What, what does that look like? So he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a little discussion about the Ten Commandments and kind of go back and forth. And the man says that he's keeping the Ten Commandments. And you can tell Jesus is like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, sure. You need, to come, you need to hear my podcast on the Sermon on the Mount. You need to listen to that one. And you can tell me if you really have. It's on iTunes, so I'll show it to you. He can tell you probably, I don't know if he said that, but he probably would have said so they have this little discussion, and, and, and then he says, okay, but, so you kept the Ten Commandments, but one thing you lack. He says, sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Go. Sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Does it kind of sound familiar? I mean, this idea, like, give everything up and, and go bless those, those that you aren't normally hanging with. Does that sound familiar? And so the, the man, he, he walks away sad because he's kind of focused, kind of, kind of focused inward, kind of, kind of likes what he's got, doesn't like this idea of going out. So he walks away. And, and the disciples, I mean, understand, they, basically what they say to Jesus is, Jesus, are you nuts? Are you serious? Sell everything? Go, what are you talking about? That is, absolutely, that is absolutely crazy. Why would anybody do this? And then listen to what Jesus says here, <clears throat> verse 29. I'll tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus died, but he rose from the grave. And what that demonstrates to us is that when we give of ourselves completely, what we give up will only come back in greater measure, sometimes immediately, sometimes later. I mean, I, I told you, we were, we were called to leave, to leave our community group and go. And you know what we discovered? We discovered that the land of the Chanites and the Rodriguezites and the Lopezites and the Morganites was the promised land. Okay, that's an exaggeration. Don't get, don't, don't get a big head, guys, back there. No, they're awesome. We love them. It's like the land flowing with milk and honey. Actually, it, really, they can cook. I'm not kidding you. This group, man, they can cook. If we had a cook-off, I mean, I know, you know, the competition, we, the, the green bean casserole competition is happening right after this, but, you know, if we turned this, this whole potluck thing into, like, one community group against another community group, and we, like, voted on the different dishes, I'm telling you, the current group I'm in would get any community group here a run for a money. In fact, I challenge you, I challenge any community group here to some sort of a potluck cook-off with our community group. It's like the land of milk and honey. No, listen, I, I know. You're, you're thinking to yourself, which community group do you like better? 
That's like asking me, which of my children do I love better? Right? The first one, the Duns, that they're like my firstborn. And that there's a connection. There's a first that, you know, always there. But then my new one, they're like my baby. They're so cute. So anyway, okay, whatever. You see, sometimes when you, when you leave that comfort zone, you'll be blessed immediately. We, we were blessed. that it, We really did. This group really came together. It doesn't always work that way. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't always work that way. I mean, sometimes you never get to, Abraham doesn't enter into the promised land in this life. I mean, his people don't really enter into it for hundreds of years later. Sometimes you're going to walk through the desert first. But what Jesus is promising is that if you persevere, if you hope in the gospel, if you give of yourselves to bless others, ultimately you will be blessed. So I'm going to leave you with this It's just basic question. Who is God calling you to bless? Because that's what it means to be the people of God. Let's pray. Dear God, We praise you for the good God that you are. You are a God who does not give up on us. You love us. You love us deeply and you have created us to reflect your goodness and your love. God, I I, I pray first and foremost that we would see how abundantly blessed we are. God, that we would see the blessings that are around us every day. God, that we would see the blessing of the gospel. That there is nothing greater than that the fundamental reality of who you are is a God of complete and total love. And that that love has been powerfully revealed in history through the story that unfolds on these pages. God, when we read the Bible, I pray that's what we would see more than anything is the love that you have for us. The absolute hope we have in you. God, I pray we wouldn't seek to love and bless others out of guilt. Pray it wouldn't be that we see a finger pointing at us. God, I pray that it would be we see you on the cross and that our hearts are moved by that, that our hearts rest in that. We pray this in Jesus' name.